a lot of people only understand Cambridge Analytica as a Facebook privacy scandal, but that company was itself provably intermingled with uh, defense contracting and um, the military industrial complex, basically. So the porous boundaries between um, the kind of war on terror, fighting hearts and minds, and our own elections um, had been breached. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, our guest is David Carroll, a professor of media design at the New School in New York City, who gained worldwide renown when he decided to engage in a legal battle with the powerful entity known as Cambridge Analytica. For those of you who may not know, Cambridge Analytica was involved in a massive data scandal that involved using Facebook data to manipulate voters into voting for Donald Trump and Brexit. In this episode, we explore David's battle against Cambridge Analytica from start to finish, attempting to go beyond the details captured in the documentary about David's fight, The Great Hack, which can be seen on Netflix still to this day. We go on to discuss many other aspects of data privacy and protection, uh, including things like the often overlooked risks that are involved and some of the potential legislation that is currently underway or that might come down the line in the future that could change humanity's relationship with data. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, David Carroll. What I think is a really interesting place to start with you in particular is how an associate professor of media design in New York ends up doing battle against a company in UK. That seems like quite an origin story. So what I would love is if you could just tell us a bit about yourself and how you went from you know that background to ending up in this pretty incredible situation that you found yourself in. Sure. Yeah, it, it might not seem obvious on the surface. And certainly now I might say, well, why didn't I pursue a law degree? But <laughs> Hindsight is always twenty twenty. So, but yeah, it's it's pro- primarily for working within and around the digital space. You know, at, since it started at the turn of the twenty first century, and watched it evolve into what it was, and was sort of in the right place at the right time to be poking around in the dark corners because of just that history of just being born at the right time and being, you know, ob- observant, but also from my profession that it was involving teaching students who are trying to get into these industries. So trying to figure them out so that we can even teach them. Also my own practice in them, um, working either for clients or more, m- much more recently, and as a failed entrepreneur, trying to um, do a tech company out of commercializing academic research. So also kind of knowing how the sausage was made and knowing the industry um, as somebody who actually did try to make something. And so, you know, met all of the personalities that are operating in the space. And, and then also 
um, was somebody on social media, especially after the startup failed and I um, increased my critical view of things, um, that I was kind of strident in views about the industry ahead of time, especially related to issues around privacy. And I made a strong connection early on between the trending of people installing ad blockers to also a kind of privacy anxiety, not just that ads are annoying. And by having a strident opinion like that, I attracted the interest of people in Europe and they were sort of looking for, are there any Americans who, who are worried about this stuff like we are? Um, and so they found me that way. And in particular, Paul Olivier de Hay, who is um, credited for kind of recruiting me to do the, the, the sort of big test, the hypothesis that we proved by doing the data request that then led to the legal challenge. Um, it was all about figuring out would the application of European data protection law have a, a relevance to the 2016 presidential election? And the answer was yes. And it was incredibly easy to prove that. So and in the purest form, it was um, just scholarly research and academic discovery and and performing experiments and and seeing what would happen. So could you talk a little bit then about what Cambridge Analytica was actually doing? Um, for people who might not know, could you just talk a little bit about what kind of data they were collecting, how they were collecting it, and why it was such a concern for you? Sure. Well, um, based on the knowledge um, that I figured out uh, more recently, like, you know, in the lead up of, to the 2020 presidential election, when the 2016 database was leaked to the UK press, and then UK journalists approached me with my actual file, the one that the the regulator and the legal process was not able to extract, and was the legal well, it was the data set that we always knew was there. Um, so it was very interesting to then get the chance to look at it and confirm our suspicions. So yes, it was a typical voter profile enriched with data broker um, information. So it really was a window into how voter files are routinely enriched with data broker um, data and then what um, what's in there. And then the supplemental things that were unique in this case were um, a psychological profile score. So all registered voters had a profile, had a psychological profile in their file uh, in the um, RNC database. It wasn't just the 87 million people who the headlines, you know, shouted that were the victims because they had their Facebook data um, collected and sold to Cambridge Analytica by a developer. Uh, who then used it uh, in different ways in the 2016 campaign, both the presidential campaign of Trump, but also other candidates uh, and other um, PACs and super PACs. So the, um, the, the, the reality is that the um, unlawful and, and in uh, illicit uh, harvesting and um, selling of Facebook data 
created a controversy that then um it sort of soiled the integrity of the rnc's data operation and the evidence that we finally saw at the end when it was leaked was that yes you know they they used a model to model all voters and so in the end all voters were actually kind of victims of a data crime at least according to uk law at the time which we proved because the regulator was able to criminally prosecute the company while an administration for ignoring the order to fully disclose the data and the regulator also said in published reports that um, that the company would have been fined for violating principle one of the UK Data Protection Act for unlawfully creating political profiles of people without their knowledge or consent or associated rights. And the only reason why they were not fully prosecuted for that was because they were protected by the moratorium that kicks in when you file for insolvency and bankruptcy. And indeed, the only thing that they were able to extract out of the company was this very particular um enforcement notice problem which was allowed by the insolvency judge so sort of it gets squeaked in uh at the last moment so um a lot of people only understand cambridge analytica as a facebook privacy scandal but i've you know for me it's much larger than that it's that to me is just the sort of thing that got people emotionally invested in the story but um, it really speaks to the reality that, you know, in previous election cycles, our data um, was transferred and transmitted outside of the borders of the United States. So we had this internationalization of the um, voter data industry uh, and that that company was itself easily um, provably intermingled with uh, defense contracting and um, the military industrial complex basically so the porous boundaries between um the kind of war on terror fighting hearts and minds and our own elections um, had been breached so those were the higher order issues that really animated my behavior and my in interest in it because i saw that the industry had gone international which I thought should be domestic, like shouldn't our election data companies be domestic operations? Like, isn't that kind of intrinsic to what we want the democratic business to be constrained by? But it wasn't, and that was very disturbing to me, just on a sort of level of, wait a minute, why are we industrializing election meddling? Why are we making a business out of out of people interfering in each other's elections I, that just that alone was like whoa what what so i think um in the larger story when more general audiences got to see the bigger story and, and look beyond just facebook privacy issues um i think that people saw a larger narrative that had bigger stakes and was much more than like who you took my facebook likes um so i think but it was a it's a complicated story and is still not well understood. Do you think that this is happening with other countries that don't have these same kind of laws in place? Because as you were talking there, I kept kind of jumping to TikTok in China and Russia and the stuff that they did with like Facebook groups and their disinformation. 
You know what I mean? Do you think that this is going on probably from other countries at the same time and there's just no real law or accountability for us to, you know, keep things in check? Well, I think the um, the larger um, concern over data sovereignty, that is, and data localization, that is, where is the data physically living and located on the earth? And how does that intertwine with local laws and jurisdictions and po political, uh, geopolitical elements? So in the case of Europe, um, this is played out significantly with regards to, for example, uh, the recent executive order by President Biden to restore um, the free flow of data between just the United States and the European Union, which had been um, destabilized by lawsuits and, and the shattering of treaties. So the, the international flow of data and the way that that is an expression of geopolitical issues, you know, is more and more clear for us now. So when it comes to Russia's um, local regulator using data localization as an instrument of the state um, to quash uh, um, po po political dissent and, and other me measures of control, we can see that mechanism being used. Uh, and we can see the, the controversies that surround ByteDance and TikTok because the boundaries between um, data flows between Beijing and the Western world are also not adequately understood and regulated and there's not enough confidence in it. That's why there's a CFIUS uh, investigation into it. Like there are some intrinsic anxieties about data flows and to the question about, you know, what's still happening. I mean, in the United States, we don't have the basic a universal right to access our own data. And so the only reason why I was able to investigate Cambridge Analytica was because of the weirdness that that Steve Bannon transferred it outside of our country into a country that had data protection laws and a regime. And so if he had kept it in the United States, then I would have had no recourse. And, and it, it was the weirdness that it left our country. So it highlights that we ourselves have not um, granted ourselves the rights that our peers across the Atlantic have. Mm -hmm. And that exception to that are states here, like California in the aftermath of Cambridge Analytica gave Californians this right. And since three other states have passed state laws, which at their baseline, you know, create this right of access, the right to get your own data, which which does not exist unless it's unless it's enumerated. Yeah. Um, and so the enumeration of these basic access rights and and then the other related rights, we're just getting started here in 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 enshrining that. And then we have to figure out how to enforce it. And the Cambridge Analytica fiasco demonstrated how difficult it is to enforce it. Yeah. Well, for you, how long did it take from onset to, to getting some kind of conclusion to really go through the process of saying, I'd like my data and, you know, them getting to solvency? Uh, so we made the request even before Trump was inaugurated in early January 2017. And then they responded just within the, the at the time, the, uh, the the deadline to respond. So they responded in March. Um, and then immediately the disclosure indicated 
the proof of our basic hypotheses, and then also the new basis to then challenge and um, contest it. Uh, and so that process began immediately, but then it took quite a bit of time to build the legal case and file the re relevant complaints. Um, and I, and interestingly, ironically, unfortunately, depending on how you look, the day that I served Cambridge Analytica with its lawsuit papers, when, when like the process server showed up to at their headquarters, that night, Facebook tried to um, end run, front run, I mean, the scandal that uh, uh, unleashed that weekend when The Guardian and The New York Times collaborated on the whistleblower story with Christopher Wiley, which is is sort of known as the moment when the story became more than a back burner kind of scandal, but then became this international scandal. And so it was that moment that, that then the company then had a basis to then say, well, we're losing all our clients, so we have to file for bankruptcy. So I never got the chance to advance the data protection case, which I was told was a slam dunk and was easy to get the best barristers in London to argue for um, on their equivalent of pro bono. Um, and so then it so then it became a, a really complicated bankruptcy insolvency case and one that i continued to to go for and and, and but it was a much higher stakes much less assured win much more of a moonshot and of course i lost and then i was on the hook for um, a significant adverse cost which was always the risk in taking on a case uh, in europe um, in a parliamentary system, which which you know, which is a legal system for the arist the aristocracy, so you you it's so, so not the same kind that we have here. So, um, but luckily, I did crowdfunding to to insure against that outcome, and it was the kind of case where you could raise an insurance policy against this outcome because people were invested in it um, on a on a personal basis, like they were. They they saw what was at stake and they were willing to um, even you know pay a donation to, to the cause and that um, yeah. saved my butt in the yeah. end. I'm glad that didn't uh, come back to bite you. Can can you talk a little bit about what did happen with California and some of the other states that you mentioned before? Do you know kind of what laws they put in the books? Sure. So um, you know, shortly after GDPR. Um, became enforced so it was interesting in the timing back in 2018 that spring you know in march we had this big scandal and then like two months later gdpr came into effect just because it was scheduled to and so the idea of data was in everyone's mind as all of a sudden this new thing appeared for everyone around the world you didn't even have to be living in europe to have this sort of show up in your inbox so um so yeah it was in the mind of people and in california um a uh, real estate developer was at a barbecue and was chatting up a, with a Google employee who was just like TMI about what Google can do. And it really got this guy whose name is Al Alistair Taggart all riled up and he committed to instigating um, a political movement in California, exploiting California's ballot measure system, 
where there was a significant ballot measure riding on the privacy anxiety of Cambridge Analytica to pass the California privacy law, the California Consumer Privacy Act. And it gained so much momentum because privacy is one of those things where if you ask people, do you want it? They say yes. And despite their behavior, despite their other, it's a very, and it's also quite bipartisan too. So, um, so the put tremendous pressure on Sacramento to act. And, and that's kind of why we have a situation where the home of Silicon Valley is the first state to regulate its own business. It really was the dynamic of the ballot measure forcing Sacramento to come up with something that is still quite a strong law in, in a land that has none. Um, and then that caused some um, copycat states, which uh, so Virginia was next, a much more industry-friendly uh, privacy law, but but had some of the basic fundamentals the same. And then um, Utah came next. Oh, then Colorado came next with uh, something better than Virginia. And then Utah came with something even more industry-friendly. And then Connecticut has been most recently with something strong, but not as strong as California. So, and I'm radically oversimplifying all that because the real story is that a patchwork of not necessarily equivalent and, and contradictory privacy law is already emerging. And that's making industry nervous mm -hmm. because, uh, as you might imagine, industry would prefer a standard. And uh, what is the standard, especially in this global context of data sovereignty, data localization, tr transnational data flow treaties getting smashed around. Uh, it creates a lot of uncertainty at the global level. And then now you have it at the local level. Businesses are like, what is happening? So in the in the backdrop against California passing, it's not only passing version one of its consumer privacy law, but actually even passing version two, mm. the CPRA, the California Privacy Rights Act, They've already iterated um, that that's also very Californian too, to um, to iterate products fast based on market response. They're already on version two um, of their privacy law. And so it has gotten Washington, D.C. to get its act together. And remarkably, a federal privacy law, the American Data Privacy and Protections Act, made it out of committee the first time such thing made it out of committee ever um but the you know where's there's almost no optimism among privacy re regulation and policy observers that it will come up for a vote and it's it's not on the agenda and the reason is not because it's a democrat versus republican issue on the contrary it came out of a bipartisan committee with bipartisan support it's Democrats versus Democrats. It's really California hmm. and Washington uh, Democrats versus the rest of the party because um, unsurprisingly, California does not want its laws to be preempted by a national one. Um, and even um, Washington lawmakers like Senator um, Cantwell and... Um, um, so it's Senator Cantwell and Senator Wyden who our senators from the West Coast who also want something much stronger. So for Wyden, you know, he's also floated a bill called the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act, strongly concerned with the problem that 
law enforcement and the military and the federal government can get around the Fourth Amendment simply by buying data from data brokers on the open market, just what Cambridge Analytica did, um, that the free flow of data on the open market is completely unrestricted. Um, so, you know, we have a, a, a party currently that has control of these legislative levers that um, is at odds with itself of related to matters of federalism, that that will we have a patchwork of state innovation where the laboratory of law is most agile mm-hmm. or will we have a national standard that is much more conducive to the practice of the free enterprise i don't know so yeah. that that's playing out uh, right now in a very vigorous way uh and then you also have like how strong can we get it um many people argue that adpa as you could pronounce it the american data protection and privacy act is potentially stronger than the european general data private general data regulation uh, so um it's uh it's a pretty interesting time to see um how much has changed in five years where prior to cambridge analytica it would be inconceivable to imagine california passing a privacy law let alone a bipartisan one getting out of committee yeah in washington dc does california's law what does it stipulate is it kind of something similar to what you did where people can request their data does it say that they companies in california specifically can't collect that kind of data you know the challenge with a lot of things like this is that it's all based about where the company is and then how's that affect the people using that product outside of those borders outside of that state border so what's what are some of the kind of the stipulations of the the californian law Mm -hmm. yeah residency seems to be a key element to um both for the the subject of what we what we call in in data protection policy wonk parlance the the user the person the the citizen is called the subject and the entity that has data is called the data controller and so um and these this language is being adopted in the United States so the idea is in California if you're a data subject meaning you're a resident of California then you may then you can exert your um Californian rights as a resident and particularly if it's a business that does business in California the source headquartered there especially I mean the the attorney general of California enforces the law there and increasingly by a new data protection authority so California will be the first state to have its own dedicated privacy regulator so it's a evolving target as to sort of how it gets enforced and who's enforcing it and what are the stakes but the first California Privacy Act settlement um has just happened um and uh the company the first co- company is Sephora the the cosmetics retailer which ironically is a French company um and they violated various things uh, related to the California Consumer Privacy Act namely things like not letting people opt out properly and not having proper notice I mean a lot of like kind of simple annoying things but the interesting thing about these laws is they're actually quite deferential to business because they give businesses ample opportunity to solve problems from complaints before any sort of real action occurs they're calling a curing period where basically a complaint goes in they say this is legitimate this is a legitimate problem you guys are in the wrong here you can fix it no questions asked no slap in the wrist nothing 
just you eat like get out of jail free card is built into the law. So Ford didn't take advantage of that. So then they got nailed and so then they had to settle. So um, I think I hope companies will take it seriously. Uh, the first company is one that said, oh, this is not going to, they're not really going to, yep, yeah, 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 they will. <laughs> if you want to act like that. So, so I think it was an interesting first example of um, as if, if you're, if you're, if you find that these new regulations as a entrepreneur are terrifying, um, it's going to make lawyers a lot, lots of money. Um, it's just going to like be all this new red tape and so on. They really don't know how to enforce this yet. And there really are get out of jail free cards embedded in these laws. You just have to look for them. Yeah. This, this might seem like a, an obvious question, but I'd love to hear you kind of wax philosophical about it to people who might challenge that there is not anything particularly unique about data collection and, you know, the way we're advertising now compared to, you know, how advertising on TV or in newspapers, what would you say to that? I mean, people might just say, Hey, you know, this is what's always happened. They've always gathered information. They've used census data. They, they always poll, they do surveys. Why is now different than before? Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so these um, issues of communication and persuasion and propaganda have always existed and uh, will persist and continue to exist. And then in many ways, they're not new issues or concerns. But of course, technology and the data supply chain has evolved profoundly and of course, also the fundamental unit of um, media production has fundamentally changed in that in the 20th century, you had um, a, a set of a set of, of, of singular voices that uh, dominated and had supremacy over the communications landscape. And the 21st century, characterized by the digital revolution, collapsed that um, singular um, need to have, um, a central communications authority because the, the cost of, of producing media and disseminated it, uh, had fundamentally shifted. So indeed the, um, shift towards the individual has been the pronounced shift. And so it is not only that the individual is micro-targeted with, unique communications that have been detailed and constructed just for them has really changed the dynamic that mass communication has shifted to hyper-personalized communication and it's a, a different beast altogether. So one of the things that disturbed people about the 2016 election in the context of Cambridge Analytica is that people could be targeted ads that no one else could see. So mass media, we can all look at the same thing because it's all being targeted like a Super Bowl ad is, is going to all the millions of people at once. We're all seeing the same thing when communications is no longer a shared experience, but actually hyper-individualized, then this sort of like the visibility into it has, has made, become opaque. So this was the main reason why, for example, Facebook deployed what it calls the ads library, which allows civil society to go in and look at political campaign ads and see all of the ads that are running and who and 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 get visibility into what is otherwise micro targeted. So 
that's an, a one little example of um, that uh, as we individualize communications, it becomes opaque to the rest of society, which is itself um, a risk that has to be mitigated. Um, the other problem is then related to that is it allows the targeting of false information quite efficiently. And we see an example that is really disturbing in the aftermath of 2016, where when you combine um, data profiles that can be misused. So for example, we know that the, the, the 2016 Trump database had data points for ethnicity and race. And then we know that there were deterrence campaigns in battleground districts. And when the UK, um, when the UK broadcaster Channel Four got a hold of the leaked database, and they went to voters, for example, a black woman in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and showed her 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 voter profile, which was all accurate to her, and showed that it, she was marked for deterrence. By seeing that, it made her response was, "Well, this makes me want to vote even more." So. In that way, the visibility into these profiles, you know, can be a neutralizing force to their abuse of power, because we know that that when you target uh, people, you can target with information that is abusive and false. So we know that, for example, Cambridge Analytica, when working for super PACs, created misleading video clips and then targeted them to African American voters. In particular, a video clip of. Um, a speech by Michelle Obama, where she makes this quip, where she says, if you can't run your own house, you can't run the White House. And she is self-deprecating, in the larger context, she's self-deprecatingly referring to herself. But Cambridge Analytica put a simple um, caption over the, the clip saying that she was referring to Hillary Clinton, which was false. And that clip was then micro-targeted to Black voters in battleground districts marked for the deterrence campaign. So there we have like the 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 data that's supposed to belong to the republic, the voter rolls, uh, and data that is circulating freely uh, in the free market, the data brokerage, and then you know even things that can be deduced or inferred accurately, such as race and race and ethnicity, uh, then abused um, you know in what is arguably an anti democratic. Um, unethical, immoral manner, and then used to spread false information to degrade the the you know demobilize participation in democracy. You can see that the same tool used to motivate people and mobilize people and get people involved and build a better society can be used for the opposite effect. It just matter. It just is a matter of how it's precisely deployed. Unfortunately, it it there is no simplistic way to to say it's it's beneficial or harmful well yeah and i was thinking at one point in the documentary um Brittany kaiser talks about the classification of psychographics as a weapon and i don't think you get to actually see too much of your response to that it, it, there's a moment of shock but then i think the the documentary just kind of goes on but what do you think about that idea of, of psychographics as a weapon, as a classified as a weapon? Does that seem valid and fair to you? So in learning more about, you know, what that um, particular thing that she's referring to of, it is back to what I was describing as um, these 
companies in the wake of 9-11 developed um, psychological warfare tactics um, and there was a incentive to classify them for export control so that those companies could get contracts with entities such as the British government and the US State Department. So the, the system itself incentivizes incentivized a company like uh, the parent company of Cambridge Analytica, SEL, to develop, you know, a methodology that then could be export controlled because then that helps them get contracts. And then they were saying, well, if we didn't renew this application for export control, and then we could use the same methodology and technology for civil society and elections. So that's the context of like what Brittany is reading and reacting to and responding to. And also, you know, highlights this porous boundary that, you know, what you can use for advertising, you can use for you know, skin cream, ski vacations, um, Islamic extremism, and fomenting, um, you know, political division in an election. That the, yeah. that, that, that it's the same infrastructure is there and the same tools are there. It just depends how you use them. And that's what was interesting about the story. And and it was just a matter of how it's classified and deployed and used in any particular industrial sector. Do you see this stuff changing as we move forward? I mean, do you see these trends correcting themselves then with all this attention that is coming to light, some of the changes that you've talked about in different states, even at the federal level in the United States? <clears throat> Does it seem like some of the issues that initially concerned you are really you know, gaining traction, the solutions are gaining traction? Y yes and no. I mean, a mix of things. I mean, um, so yes, it's been, um, I, I'm like, I, yes, I hope that we have interrupted the trend towards an internationalized voter analytics industry. And yes, I hope that there's greater awareness that we need to firewall more, um, these industries so that we have cleaner separation between the way we use these tools on society for different purposes and cross-functional uses can be really problematic even though it can make for a good business model mm -hmm. and uh but then i think you know we've also seen um the struggle that the platforms have had themselves in responding to these crises so you know if if we if we if we take a if i if i take a really kind of cynical honest assessment of for example where the platforms are right now you know it seems like mark zuckerberg is now is no longer interested in the blue app and he is all he wants to make a new thing that he can move beyond the ghosts that haunt him and he's really fighting in and he wants to build that he wants to build, you know, his met metaverse that nobody's visiting, and he's really fighting against TikTok, and um, and 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 that's a sort of a current dynamic that's um, shifting things. And and then meanwhile, we're watching uh, Elon Musk purchase Twitter and Kanye West purchase Parler, and a sort of fragmentation on political grounds of of these pl platforms themselves. Um, and the politics, the, the 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 political problems of technology that erupted five years ago, you know, are still um, 
animating the discourse in different ways and still like roiling uh, the how people are confronting these these is- issues that uh, you know, and of course the January six insurrection occurred, you know, at, between these mo- moments too, and and the pandemic and and the Dobbs decision and and all these things like are 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 indistinctly connected to both the political divisions but also the question of privacy you know uh that it's it's it couldn't be more bleak with regards to the fall of roe uh that personal autonomy is directly connected to whether or not those rights are enumerated in the constitution um and so the enumeration of rights is something that we're we have to really be considering now so that's why i think the discussions around privacy at the federal state or wherever are interesting because we are trying to enumerate basic rights that could help us better adapt to the impact of these technologies um that 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 for me the simple right of access is a is a is a little window that could give us visibility to create better balance mm. to advocate for fairness to reduce harm um to create more equity and to go against to sort of counteract the built-in incentives which can be you know inherently harmful so to me the first step is can we even see and then if we can see what could we do and there's a lot of work to do to just be able to see and as we move you know increasingly towards algorithms and large learning set models and we're you know we're now we're moving beyond like does a plat like is a platform responsible for these mm-hmm. things we're getting to the point where an indeterminate code base that nobody even owns is responsible and who do we even sue yeah well it seems crazy to me too you know i'm not the first to think of this it's at this point but you know i, I do social science research and if you talk about where you could get the best data for that it's going to be at a place like facebook and it's kind of um just insane to me that the biggest laboratory for understanding the human condition right now is not is not accessible to our our more altruistic researchers to our you know nonprofits to our government it's in the hands of a a company that's just selling our data and it's like that's such a not only is that just a travesty for humanity that we don't have that information to help better our society but it's also really dangerous yeah and it's in i mean it's 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 funny to hear people in um the digital humanities and the social sciences and related fields science and technology studies etc cetera, etc cetera, like talk about how you know twitter causes the fruit fly problem that that because twitter data is so easily accessible and studyable it's studied like fruit flies are so that we have this bias towards studying twitter that's disproportionate to its impact um just like we know too much about fruit flies because they're easy to 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 study so um so yeah and indeed the cambridge analytica fiasco uh dramatically affected the position of facebook with regards to research data because at its core it was a scandal around the misappropriation of academic research and commercialization 
um, that it was the improper management of the boundaries between research for academia and research for a commercial entity. And that's that itself was a mixed boundary between uh, defense contracting and working in elections that that the the firewalls between data collection within academia had become too porous. It was a wake up call for academia itself. I'm, I'm afraid to say that we are punished from our own recklessness um that even the the storied halls of cambridge university you know are implicated in the scandal here uh that it took some mistakes being made by academic researchers to realize you know where we can go wrong so hopefully chastened by this we can develop more responsible ways to do these kinds of studies and certainly innovations with privacy protecting technologies, whether that be differential privacy in the immediate um, scope of things, but down the road, potentially homomorphic encryption uh, is a long way to go. But certainly there are some um, interesting advancements in the near term that, um, you know, we could get to responsible data use by re researchers that are that's also privacy protecting. Yeah, but but it's it's really difficult because um, privacy itself is a power differential. Um, so the question is privacy, who has it? Um, and who, who, who doesn't? Um, and, uh, and, and that's, that's what we're ultimately negotiating when we try to do research with the public's data. What I was thinking I'd love to hear from you about is, is having ownership of your data human right at this point. And at the same time, I'm thinking, how tragic it is that we're all in this kind of fragmented society where we all live in our own reality tunnels based on the different information that we're being sold. And I'm thinking as soon as we give people ownership of their data, they're just going to sell it back to these companies because they're incentivized to make money in this economy in, in many ways. And then we're just going to end up in the same place. So there's, there's many levels of a question there, I suppose. But, you know, do you think from what you've seen of your students, do people over the years, do people seem to actually care about what's done with their data? Do you think if we did give ownership of our data back to people that we wouldn't just end up in, in the same place? Mm, yep. It's a great question. And I think, so the first answer to that, is it a human right? Well, only for some people. Um, so for example, the largest economic bloc in the world, the European Union, those people who live there do enjoy data protection is a fundamental human right. And it's inscribed in their founding documents. And it's just a matter of how it gets enforced in the society. Now, as I was described before, some people in some states are starting to, in the United States, are starting to enjoy some aspects of it as a human right, or we, we, we might say a civil right. And um, and so is it is it effective in, as a tool of accountability and transparency and to re-equalize the power differential that privacy otherwise causes? Um, and then the question is, are you really owning your data when you retrieve it? And I would say you're not. You're just, um, it's a clawback uh, at best, uh, but it's not really ownership because there are many copies of data 
and all you're doing is clawing back um, one aspect of it, but you you have no exclusive rights to all the copies of did data. There's no way to claw back at all. There's no way to, to, to seize total control of your data with which it could then become a scarce resource to then have any value on its own. Impossible, which I think is the fundamental like philosophical flaw with like this idea that you could sell your data because it's not a scarce asset. It's, and it's, 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 it, it's, it has no scarcity to it at all. Um, even if you try to exert all this power to claw it back. And then of course, data itself is, um, has a half-life, you know, it, it, it has an expiration date, a shelf life. Uh, the data on you is out there now, but in 10 years, it's worthless because it's no longer that relevant to you. So that's a factor that makes it difficult to make it a valuable asset on an individual level as well. And then of course, it's, it's, it, we don't have a retail um, economy for data. We only have a wholesale. Did the data supply chain is exclusively a wholesale market, and we are bought and sold as wholesale only. We are only valuable in aggregate as audiences, as segmentations, as collections of 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 vectors of behavior, predictions, um, proxies of attention. It's also abstract and traded derivative and so on. Um, it, this idea that it's we are invaluable as an individual is hilarious because um, we really aren't, and we don't want to be told that or admit that or, or really feel that, but it's true. Um, if anything, it's just pennies. Um, or the closest we are seeing now um, to a price tag on our personal data is something I've been noticing potentially happening in Europe of all places, in Germany. Um, some people, are, some companies, publishers are trying to work around the GDPR in a loophole and and make it so that if you decline cookies, you will have to pay extra. Um, so a kind of a fee to say no to the cookie uh, consent. And that's really putting a price tag then on um, how you are priced as a wholesale I item in the market. Um, or at least that's how you're getting retailed from whatever you're worth at the wholesale. So we are seeing some ways that personal data is getting put a price tag on we're also seeing it in in um legal cases so in illinois you know, one state that has a really strong biometric privacy law the biomet the illinois biometric information privacy act or bipa there was a facebook lawsuit and settlement and residents of illinois were eligible for settlements for facebook illegally using their um, facial recognition scans and it was lots of money. It was like some people got up to $600. So, um, and then of course you could say my Cambridge Analytica story is an example of the elasticity of the cost of personal data because um, it cost me 10 pounds, not US dollars to make the data request because at the time companies could could ch charge fees for requests. Uh, and then of course um, the legal costs uh, to, to uh, then defend it um, grew substantially ballooned immeasurably. So to me, that shows that um, data is worthless unless it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fair point. <laughs> you can't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, looking forward then, I know we're getting close on time here. Looking forward, what would you like to see happen from, from all of your experiences, from the lessons that you've learned from this process, from the research that you've done and, and the dangers of this situation what are some of the ideal paths for that 
you would love to see us start walking down? Sure. Well, I think the the sequence of tainted elections and global pandemic and um, the fall of reproductive autonomy is like a triple blow um, to especially um, Americans. And in places like China, you have zero COVID and the um, the sort of infiltration of surveillance in everyday life. And some people in China are maybe seeing the limits of their tolerance for that kind of a, a, a life. So, you know, the, the we're getting the squeeze and we're work from home means that people are installing invasive surveillance into their computers to monitor their productivity when they're you know on the job. And so the boundary of home life and surveillance is being um, uh, destabilized. And, you know, so we are in the process of confronting this. So with that in mind, I hope that more and more people are accepting the foundational problem here of um, privacy is power and who has it and who doesn't and it matters and we're realizing how it matters and um what's at stake and um you know didn't even talk about the problems of the data brokers who are selling people's visits to reproductive health cl clinics to potentially advance a vigilante law in another state like some worst case scenarios have really come to pass so my hope is that the the stakes are so high that that people will act and um i would i would hope that if uh the if democrats maintain control of the levers of government in the next congress that they that they push through um adpa or something like it that that business needs a national standard that all citizens deserve the same rights equal rights i'm also sort of against this idea of let's do children first and then adults later. No, let's do everyone. Um, and uh, um, I, I feel like the the argument for equal protections for all um, is becoming clearer to people who might not see the value of it. And even businesses are seeing the need to serve, get on board and see the benefits of increased trust in the business ecosystem and increased certainty and decreased uncertainty and kind of resolve these anxieties for um greater stability both at the international and local level like so i think we all have some alignments that we could recognize to be on the same team on that note man uh i want to give you a chance before we officially wind down here to just leave us any closing thoughts if you have anything at all you'd like to say maybe something you're working on research that you could use volunteers for anything you'd like to point people towards, obviously we'll, we'll link to the documentary, but if you just have any closing thoughts, I'd like to give you that chance to kind of lay it out now. Yeah, no, I think um, we're months away from another significant election in the United States, the midterm elections. And what's fascinating is we don't know how it's going to, um, we we no no one can accurately predict the outcomes. So this idea that we can predict the future, um, perhaps is is even less assured than it was a few years ago. And maybe that's good. Maybe we can't predict the future as well as we think we can. There you go. Perfect, David. Thank you for your time and for this uh, insightful and uh, informative conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, David. <laughs> <laughs>